All right. Uh, We are now going to finish up parables. This is our 22nd sermon on parables. This is the longest series we've ever done. And you guys, I'm just going to applaud you for hanging in there. All right. Um, We're going to go through the book of Numbers next. And it's going to be fun. It's going to be 43 weeks through the book of Numbers. And uh, it's bring your calculators. And a no, no, I'm kidding. We're not doing numbers. No, I'm kidding. But this has been what I consider a, a very important series in the teachings of Jesus. Because Jesus often taught very plainly. And he put things out there and said, this is the way it is. But he also taught, as we have seen over these last 22 weeks, that Jesus also taught in ways that not everyone could understand. Jesus said, those who can see and those who can hear will get what I'm saying, but those who do not will not. And so that's why we've called the series of parables, The Secret Teachings of Jesus, because even though it's easy to look at something, look at one of his stories and say, I get what he's saying, I get the analogy, I understand it, he may be talking about something a lot deeper than what we grasp at face value. Um, So as we've gone through these, if you'd like to go back and you'd like to follow up on any of these sermons... Then you can follow through on uh, our podcast on iTunes. You can also go online and you can go back through any of these. Today, I'm going to be sharing the last parable that we're planning to do. And I'm just going to be quite honest with you. This is a tough one. It's the shortest one and it's a tough one. Because Jesus doesn't explain it. And there are a lot of different opinions as to what he meant by it. And my goal today is not to settle that. My goal today is to communicate to you what those are, what I believe God is saying to us. But there are, regardless of how you interpret this parable, there are some common threads that are important for all of us. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 13. Uh, Rick read from Galatians 5. I'm going to come back to that in a minute because that is a great summation of one of the things I think Jesus is trying to say in this parable. But let's look back at Matthew 13. This This is a rich chapter about parables. We've talked about the sower. We've talked about all kinds of seeds. He's using all kinds of agricultural Um, analogies to describe spiritual principles. When Jesus speaks in parables, what is he teaching about? Kingdom of God. God. When we look at these teachings, he's not just giving you trite thoughts on the way that you need to live your life. Instead, he's talking about this deeper level of the kingdom of God that is all around us, and yet we can't see it. It's going on all around us. The world is changing as a result of the kingdom, and yet it is a kingdom that doesn't function the way that our world functions. It doesn't function the way our governments function, praise the Lord, right? It's, it's not the same kind of a kingdom that we look and we read about in history books, but instead it is a very subversive, quiet movement of God within the world that is changing the world around it. And so then he comes and he describes what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the parable of the mustard seed. These, let's just read these two together. They're packaged together. And it says in verse 31, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven, which is interchangeable with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air... Come and make nests in its branches. 
He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, let me ask you this. How many bakers do we have in the room? How many of you know anything about leaven? All right, I need you to come up and teach because I know nothing about leaven, right? I don't bake anything. That's rule number one in my house. I don't bake. Now, I can totally ruin something. And if you want me to ruin something, I can do that. But leaven is what this whole parable is about. And I just got to be honest, this is, a, this is a difficult parable to figure out what Jesus is talking about. When we look at this, it follows the parable of the mustard seed. And there are a lot of who believe that the parable of the leaven is basically the same message as the parable of the mustard seed. The mustard seed, we talked about the kingdom that would, would be small and be seemingly insignificant, but it would grow. And this was in stark contrast to what people expected the kingdom of God to be because the Jews thought that the Messiah was going to come and usher in this new kingdom of Israel, was going to wipe out all of their enemies, and then they were going to reign supreme as the number one world power in the world. The reason they believed this is because God had been promising them a deliverer from all of their enemies for generations. And they go back all the way to the covenant with Abraham when God said, if you will follow me, I will make you a great nation so that your descendants are more numerous than the number of stars that you could count in the sky. And so much of the way that the nation of Israel responded to God was in the promise of establishing them as this great nation in the world. So that when Jesus came, he said, this is not my kingdom. I have not come to overthrow Rome, which was the oppressor of the day. My point is to usher in the kingdom of God, which many will never see and many will never hear. And then he goes on to tell the parable of the leaven. Now, we've got three main characters in the parable of the leaven, and we've got to be careful every time we come to a parable or any teaching in Scripture, we have to be careful not to read too much in, right? As a, as a preacher, it is sometimes fun to really dive into every single detail and deconstruct, and you can do that and make anything say whatever you want. It's important that we not go too far with it because this is an analogy. This is allegory. This is not meant to be, okay, now dig deep into every piece of this. However, in this parable, we do have to ask ourselves certain questions. We have this flower, we have this woman, and we have this leaven that is somehow hidden into this flower. So we have three characters that we've got to understand. One, the leaven. Two, the three measures of flour. Now, I don't know if you're, you operate in the uh, measurement of flour by using the term measure, but it is a lot of flour. And it's estimated that with three measures of flour, you could make about 12 loaves of bread. So it's a lot of flour. He's not just talking about, oh, it took a little bowl full of flour, he's going to make a loaf of bread. He, this is a lot of flour. This is something that's, that's large, that yet something small changes it and makes it into something else. And then number three, we've got the woman who hides this leaven into the flour. Now, as we look at these three characters and we try to understand, there are really three ways 
by looking at all of the rest of Scripture that we could try to understand what Jesus is saying because, as I said, he doesn't explain it, which would have been very helpful, but the fact that he doesn't explain it and the fact that we can understand it in different ways may have been the point of what Jesus was trying to do and part of that going deeper to have eyes to see and ears to hear. The first one, the most common way people understand it, is the parable as a growth model, similar to the mustard seed, that the kingdom is going to grow, it's going to start small, something is going to be introduced, and all of a sudden it is going to become so much more than it was before. When we look at these, there are, you know, as we look at those three main characters, we look at the kingdom, the kingdom starts small, like the leaven, the leaven is that starting small, and we look at that as Jesus would be teaching. It starts with Jesus. The gospel starts with Jesus, moves on to the 12 disciples, moves on Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and is supposed to then spread to the uttermost parts of the world. And so we can look at that and say, okay, the kingdom is certainly something that could be growing. We can also understand in this model of understanding the parable that the work of the kingdom is hidden. So we can't necessarily see all that's going on. The kingdom isn't going to be in your face. It's not going to be on the news. It's not going to be where everybody is shouting and looking. In fact, Jesus said the only time everyone's going to shout about the kingdom of God is when Jesus returns like lightning crossing, uh, flashing across the sky. Then everyone will notice. But until then, the work of the kingdom is hidden. It's quiet. It's subversive which I think is something we need as a church to get back to. The subversive nature of the gospel is not one in which we are big and loud and we are in your face, but we are quiet and we are small. We are confident and we are in the community loving others the way that Jesus loves. That's subversive. Because in today's world, in, to, in today's news, in today's entertainment, in today's politics, as we've all been so excited about for the last several weeks, months, years, or decades, some of us, is very loud and in your face, very much, this is what you're supposed to believe, this is the way you're supposed to be. And the church tried that. And it hurt the gospel. Because we became something else. <laughs> But instead, Jesus instructed his disciples to go out. Their influence would not be their own power. Their ability to create change was not going to be in their own ability to speak or to convince others. It would be the Holy Spirit working through them, working through others, and all of that would come together, and then you would experience the kingdom of God in a beautiful way. It was subversive. I can get, I can get into this definition or this understanding, this model of the parable is quiet and it's subversive. One of the things that makes that then more important to us is in a subversive model of the gospel spreading in the world, every little thing you do matters to the kingdom, even if it doesn't look like it matters in the world. Every little act of faithfulness, every act of love, every time you forgive rather than holding a grudge, every time you give someone the benefit of the doubt rather than jumping down their throat and assuming the worst, every little bit makes a difference in the kingdom. Just like a little leaven lumpens the whole dough. Every little thing you do has a large impact in the kingdom because it is God who is working through that. The third thing we see in this parable is a growth model. 
is that the kingdom is influenced from the outside. The kingdom doesn't grow because of great pastors or great committees or great worship teams. It doesn't grow because people give a lot of money. It grows because something from the outside comes in and influences it and changes it. We understand that as Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the gospel, the good news. It can be any number of things that we can intertwine into that understanding that God himself is coming in and infusing within those three measures of flour something that changes it that they would not be able to be by themselves or on their own. They would never be able to make up for, but instead something comes in. As we look at these, the leaven is most likely the gospel. The woman in the parable in this model is most likely Jesus. And the flower in this model is most likely the church. Now, we could just wrap this up very neatly, and we could go home, we could go out to eat, we could go do whatever we want, but if we do that, then we might miss the rest of what God has been saying in His Word from the very beginning. (laughs) So there's a second possible model for what this parable is meaning, and that is that the leaven is a reminder. Now, what do I mean by the leaven is a reminder? Leaven is not exactly a new concept. This isn't the first time that it's mentioned in Scripture. In fact, leaven is mentioned several times. If you are a student of the Old Testament, if you know anything about Passover, you know that Passover was celebrated that would eventually be transformed into what we celebrate as communion. Passover was celebrated to remember what? Make you think here. What was Passover to remember? Put the blood on the doorsteps. The Hebrew slaves and the angel of death passed over all of the homes that had sacrificed a lamb and had painted the doorpost with blood. The angel passed over. This was the event in which Pharaoh told the Hebrews, you can go. And then when they went... They shortly thereafter had an experience in the desert. They were gifted the Ten Commandments by God and the law instituted in order to ratify and help them understand not only the covenant, but understand God and how to follow God. And in that reminder, there were several sacrifices that were to be made consistently. Two sacrifices that were often made together that were crucially important for the nation to be honoring God and not only honoring God, but to be made clean before God were the burnt offering and the grain offering. Now the burnt offering is if you're familiar with sacrifices is all you probably at least are familiar with the burnt offering burnt offering. You would take an animal. It it would be the atonement for your sin. Now, if you are kind of growing up in this in the New Testament and at this time, then when you think of atonement of sin, who do you think of? Jesus. You think of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. He was the perfect sacrifice. But he, what he would have been in the Old Testament is the burnt offering in which they would take an animal. You would then pray that your sin would be moved from you to this perfect unblemished animal. It would be killed and then it would be burnt, completely burned up, given to God. It was the burnt offering. Then what would also go with the burnt offering almost immediately following was the grain offering. Now, the reason I'm taking you through this little bit of history is because there were very strict instructions for the offerings. There was a little bit of leeway and flexibility in the grain offering. But if we look at Scripture, what we find is that leaven is a part. This is where we're introduced with the concept of what leaven looks like in you know, spiritual symbolism. Leviticus 6, 14, and 17 describes the grain offering. 
It says, and this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it, Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Now, one of the reasons that there was to be no leaven is because God wanted them to remember how he has taken care of them. This is not just something for the Old Testament. This is something for you today that you are constantly called to remember the provision of the Lord in your life, to remember his promises, to remember what he has done. I will tell you when you're struggling, when you're stressed out, when you're thinking, I don't know that I can get through whatever this hardship is that you're going through. One of the ways that God allows us to deal with that is to remember what he has already done so that we can have faith that he will be with us in this time of trial and in future ones. In fact, one of the things about Thanksgiving that I believe God would honor, not necessarily the way that we remember the history of the first Thanksgiving in this country, but just the concept of Thanksgiving is that, you know what? We are able to face our challenges when we recognize all that we already have. Because a great deal of our worry has to do with what we don't have, or what's coming, or what may be, or what may not be. And so part of the reason that they would eat unleavened bread, we read in the actual escape from Egypt. This is how far back the concept of the leaven goes. And we read that in Exodus 12, 37, 39. This is after the, the angel have passed over and Pharaoh is telling them to leave. They are on their way out. And it says, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had any, they prepared any provisions for themselves. Literally, they ate unleavened bread as they fled Egypt because there was no time to put yeast in the bread and let it rise. They had to take what they had and go with, with over a million people. Once you add in women and children, they had to, they couldn't wait for the bread to rise. And this is why in the Passover meal, when they would celebrate the Passover, you would eat unleavened bread because it would remind you of God's provision to rescue them from Egypt. And they so quickly had to leave, they couldn't wait for the bread to rise. Now, if we look at that understanding of leaven being used in Scripture, this really doesn't seem to be the purpose of leaven in the parable. And the reason is, is because Jesus is ushering in a new covenant. He's not, you know, securing the old one. If this was a reminder of what God had done in, in releasing them from Egypt, then Jesus would not be talking to them about the new covenant in his blood, where the greatest commandment was to love God and the second was like it to love others. 
So it's not likely that the parable of the leaven is about remembering their escape from Egypt. Even communion, the Passover meal that we still celebrate, is not meant to symbolize the exodus of Egypt anymore. Communion, it celebrates that Jesus gave his body as a a sacrifice of atonement for us. So even that is different. So is it likely that Jesus in this parable is saying the kingdom of God is remembering the old covenant when Jesus is going to say the old covenant is past, the new covenant now in my blood is here. So it's not likely that this idea or understanding of leaven in this parable is it either. Which leads me to the third one, which doesn't quite feel as good. And rather than talking about the growth of the church is a warning to the church. If we understand leaven in this context, it changes the parable of the leaven to the parable of warning for us today. So where have we seen leaven and warning together in scripture before? Almost everywhere we see leaven other than in remembering the Exodus, leaven almost always represents sin, evil, or corruption. When it's used symbolically in scripture. Almost every time. Let me give you some examples. So follow along with me. Luke 12, 1 through 3 says, In the meantime, with so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. This is Jesus with his disciples. And Jesus is trying to teach them. He says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So here's a warning about leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy in this example. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, Paul says this about leaven. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven... Leavens the whole lump? That sounds familiar. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now Paul is clearly at this point pointing back to that unleavened bread of deliverance, except rather than our deliverance from Egypt, we are delivered from sin through Christ. And he is saying, beware the leaven. You need to purge it from you so that you can truly yourself be unleavened. We read that and we think, oh, okay. So then how do we understand the three pieces of this parable if this is a warning rather than a promise of how the church is going to grow? Which, to be honest, if I were going to pick which one I wanted it to be, it would be for me the first one, how the church is supposed to grow, because that's a lot safer, right? In fact, that's the way we often read Scripture. We try to read it safely, which is why so many of us miss what Jesus is really saying, because Jesus was rarely safe. Instead, Jesus was challenging And Jesus saw what was on the landscape and he wanted people to know what was the truth because he knew that there would be others that would come in. They would adjust the truth just enough so that they would miss Jesus himself. 
So when we understand this, if we look at the leaven, we understand, well, the leaven, maybe, maybe the leaven's not a good thing, because we assume it's a good thing, right? The reason you and I assume leaven is a good thing is because how many of you enjoy eating unleavened bread? Yeah, okay, a few of you, you just throwing, you're throwing my curve completely out here, all right? You know, when I was a kid, I don't know so much anymore. But any of you have parents that would bake cakes and you couldn't make, like, move a muscle in the house while it was baking? Anybody, did anybody grow up like that in a, in a, now talk about a subversive home. Mom would put a cake in and I couldn't move, (laughs) you know, because if you move, what would happen? Cake falls. What happens when the cake falls? You don't eat it. You throw it away. I mean, it's a complete, it's the exact same thing, right? Except it fell. You can't ice it. It doesn't look pretty. You can't stack them. I mean, the cake fell. I don't know if cakes still fall. Surely we in 2018 can make yeast that doesn't fall in the oven when a kid jumps around, right? If not, hey, listen, if any entrepreneurs in the room, you need to go work on that because it shouldn't be happening. It probably does happen now. We probably keep it like by infusing rubber into it, right? That's how food works today. Put a little rubber in there. It's going to stay up. You can throw it against the wall. It'll bounce back and catch it. It's great. I'm pretty sure McDonald's does that with their pancakes, by the way. We got pancakes yesterday. We were headed out for a college visit. Jake was visiting the college. We stopped by McDonald's and Jonathan, he wanted some pancakes. So literally they sat in the car all day. I threw them away, you know, yesterday late afternoon and I touched it and I just was, I threw up a little in my mouth, right? (laughs) Have you ever seen a McDonald's pancake hours after you should have already eaten it? It is literally like holding a piece of foam rubber. I'm not joking. It's hard. Go get pancakes and let them sit out for a couple hours and then touch them. And listen, you'll be throwing up in your mouth too. It's, I don't know what you're putting in your body with that stuff. It's not real food, right? It's not real food. Don't eat it. No, I don't want to go there. I don't get sued by McDonald's. But I'm just saying, it's not, there's something else in there. But we are so used to leaven that without it, something's wrong. And all our bread, we want it to rise. We want it to be fluffy. We want all those little holes in there. That makes it good. It tastes good. It feels good going down. I mean, we like leaven. But when Jesus was talking to them, he wasn't talking to us. He is. But we weren't there, right? He was talking to people who would understand leaven in a different context than we would. We don't have the historical nor emotional attachment to leaven that they did. And so if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying, and especially for the fact that Jesus did not then expand on his teaching. If symbolically leaven has been seen as a bad thing, it makes it difficult for me to see that Jesus is using it in a positive way. And if he was, that he would then say, this is a positive thing. Now, this does not mean that they never ate leavened bread. They did. That was the normal way they would eat bread. Whenever they would eat unleavened bread, it was just a part of remembering and a part of following the commandments of Jesus. So it wasn't that they just never ate leavened bread or that was not something they had experience with. But as we look at the three measures of flour and the understanding that what if the leaven that's being hid is not a good thing because God wants it to stay unleavened? Then we have to look at these three characters again, and we look at the three measures of flour. That would then represent the church. 
Because remember, the parables are about what? The kingdom. As we see the kingdom, the kingdom is not just the church, but the kingdom is very much the church. And so as we look at these three measures of flour, what Jesus is saying, that it was that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took leaven and what did she do? Did she mix it in? She hid it. We'll come back to that in just a second. She hid the leaven into the three measures of flour. And the whole lump was leavened. The three measures of flour, if we understand the parable in this way, is the church. The leaven itself would be corruption. Introduction of sin. The changing of the gospel. Now, I want you to think back to things that Scripture tells us, especially in the New Testament, about the gospel. What happens when you change the gospel? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? It's a terrible thing. It makes it no longer good. In fact, what we see over and over and over again in the New Testament, both from Jesus and from his apostles, were warnings to watch for people that would want to come in and would want to adjust the gospel and change it. Wolves in sheep's clothing, false teachers, false prophets, antichrists, plural, by the way, for, for our left behind fans, there is not just one antichrist in scripture. There are many antichrists. It wasn't just the one person who's going to usher in the rapture as we often read in our stories of the end times, but instead the Antichrist was something that would come consistently with the goal of adjusting the gospel so that those who would receive it would not. So we look at the parable of the sower. These are perhaps those who the seed is thrown around uh, thorns and weeds and it grows up but then the cares of the world chokes it out and what they had they lose which is a very scary concept of the fact that you can know christ or and then you can lose it or those on the rocky ground that they never had any foundation no depth and it withers and it dies within them of all the soils there's only one that lasts till the end it's the good soil and so he warns us against false teachers, false prophets, and antichrists saying that they will come in and they will adjust it in just such a way that they will, it will not grow within them. This is, not, this is a warning. This is also a promise. <laughs> Something that we need to be aware of. We'll talk about that again in a minute. So the leaven would be corruption, some introduction of sin, changing of the gospel, and in, in essence, a negative influence that somehow contaminates the purity of the church. Say it isn't so, right? The church is perfect, right? We are pure. We never make a mistake. We never act the wrong way. We never have to ask forgiveness. We never give Jesus a bad name in the world, right? What if Jesus is saying with the parable of the leaven, immediately after saying the parable of the mustard seed, the church is going to start small, but it is going to grow. It's going to be subversive and it is going to expand. That Even the birds who normally would just pick that seed off the ground and eat it, they will nest in its branches. What if he's following that up with a warning? But as it grows, the three measures of flour, which is a lot of flour. There's a woman that's going to, and let me just not lose some of you in here, that gender is not important here. 
But there's someone who's going to put something in there and corrupt it. Change it. It changes the way we see it, doesn't it? It changes the whole understanding, but it's not something we can come to and just say, oh, well, clearly it says in Matthew 13 that this is exactly what it means because it's very possible this is not what it means, but it is also very possible that it is. What do you do when you come to a piece of Scripture and you're like, I'm not sure what it means. It can mean lots of different things. How do I pick one? Well, we'll talk about that in just a second. But the leaven would be that. In Matthew 16, we read this. When the disciples reached the other side, they were with Jesus. They had forgotten to bring any bread, which was a common problem for them, right? (laughs) Jesus said to them, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There it is again. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. (laughs) We're getting hungry. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gather? This is after Jesus has multiplied the fish and the loaves. Do you not remember that? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? You're still not getting what I'm saying, which gives me hope that at least I'm on par with the disciples. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So this understanding of the parable is not so far-fetched after all, because this is a consistent teaching of Jesus at this point. That whether or not this parable is talking about the growth of the kingdom or this parable is a warning that the church remains true to its Savior, it's still a consistent message in the New Testament. So that leaves us with the woman. Who is the woman? We don't know who the woman is. The woman is used, the, the term the woman is used many different ways in Scripture. It generally doesn't refer to a person or a woman or women in general. It is not some kind of reference back to Eve. The woman is representative of a system of beliefs, teachers, religion. And as we look at the woman, what does she do? In the Greek, the word to hide it is the word encrypto, which literally means it's where we get the word to encrypt. So that hiding the leaven in the loaves of bread is the word to encrypt, to make it so you can't know what's going on. To hide it, a secret. The gospel is not supposed to be a secret. Jesus is not supposed to be a secret. The Holy Spirit is not supposed to be a secret. It is to those who are not paying attention. But to the kingdom, if the flower is the church, that's not supposed to be a secret. And yet it is hid It's not mixed in. It's not added. It's hid. It's hidden. It's secret. So we look at then, then who is the one who secretly would introduce corruption or sin or evil into the church? And the woman would then not represent Jesus. 
the woman would rep- represent the enemy, rep- represent Satan. That's who the woman would be, introducing corruption into the church. Why does this matter to us if this is the case? We come back to what Rick read earlier, Galatians 5.1, Paul's warning to us. And we need to look at the context of what he's saying as he introduces again the concept of leaven because I believe this is very much what that parable would mean. It begins with verse 5, one of my favorite verses. I, I quote it to myself regularly. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, do not embrace sin that changes you, that encapsulates you, that oppresses you, that enslaves you. You have been made free from that. Don't go back. Don't go back to this way of life. Don't go back to this way of thinking. Don't go back to this way that we spend our time and spend our resources. Don't go back to the way we used to talk. Don't go back to the things we used to go after. Don't go back and embrace the priorities of our hearts before we knew Christ. Instead, stay true to where God is taking you. Stay true to the path of what Jesus has been teaching you. Verse 2 says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, he's following back then into the Jewish understanding of the law, the old covenant, which is again why I don't think the parable is a parable of a reminder. There was no point to go back to the old covenant. The old covenant is done, gone, over. But for those that want to keep it, they want to resurrect it, they want to make it continue to be important. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Verse 7. You were running well. You're on the right track. You're doing good. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. There it is again. There it is again. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you putting a little leaven in the three measures of flour. The one who is troubling you, the woman, whoever that is. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, we, we, excuse me, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. In other words, we're persecuted because we're speaking against the traditional Jewish understanding of faith and we're teaching about Jesus instead. If we just didn't do that anymore and we we embraced the old covenant again, nobody'd be upset with us. They'd be happy that we were doing that. That's what he's saying here. But if, brothers, still I preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Like Paul, that's a little harsh, right? (laughs) Because he knows the cost when someone comes in and corrupts that which is meant to be pure. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So what Paul is saying is there is a way of living with Jesus that brings freedom and hope and joy and love excitement about what God is doing, seeing what he is doing. When we understand it through the rest of the parables, we know that the kingdom of God is here. It's among us. It's now. And those of us who are paying attention, it's not just that we know it's happening. We see it and we hear it. It is a part of our everyday lives. Following Jesus is not this list of rules that we now follow. It is literally walking with the Son of God who is the Savior of the world. That is the way we live our lives. We see it, and it brings what wells up within us joy. And as the Holy Spirit begins to work more and more in us, He promises us, you're going to listen. You're going to have peace within your life, even when everything falls apart, which are the, the apostles, especially Stephen. You want to go read about an, an incredible case of peace when everything's falling apart? Read the story of Stephen. Whenever he's being killed... Paul's standing up on the hill holding everyone's coats. They're stoning him. In the midst of the stoning, he looks up and is at peace because he sees the kingdom. As we've mentioned before, we saw another picture of that very recently of Christians in Egypt who were being killed by ISIS, told that they would be spared if they would recant their faith, and yet as they were killed, they sang hymns. To Christ. How do you do that? Have you ever wondered how you do that? Like, I hope I'm that guy, right? Don't you? Now, some of you are like, well, I was that guy. No, you're not because you're still here. But I hope I was that guy. I would be that guy, right? Someone comes in, holds a gun to your head and says, either you recant or I'm going to kill you. I want to be singing praises to Jesus. I hope I'm that guy. If you're not sure if you're that guy or that girl, it's okay. Because literally, the scriptures say it is the Holy Spirit that does that in that moment, not you. It's not an act of your will. It's an act of letting the Holy Spirit be manifested in you. It is incredible what the Holy Spirit does within us whenever we allow Him to be active and work in our lives. It's amazing. So as we look at this parable, which is it, right? So it leaves us with the question, which is it? And me, as your studied, seminary-trained pastor, I'm just going to tell you, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know which it is. Because I think every, every bit of that is true, except that it's a reminder of the Old Covenant. There is no place that Jesus reinforces the Old Covenant other than to say, I haven't come to do away with any bit of the law. That's the only place. He didn't talk about the Old Covenant. That is not the understanding of this parable, that the leaven is a reminder to their removal from Egypt, unless you want to interpret that in the sense that as they were rescued from Egypt, we are rescued from our sin through Christ. You could maybe make an argument for that, but I don't think Jesus would stretch it that far. Maybe he would. But is it a growth model? It's small. The influence of the gospel is going to spread and take this thing that we are, and it is going to grow it and make it into something different and better? I think it very possibly could be.
Because I believe that's absolutely true. Is it a warning that says, listen, you are this unleavened lump of flour. You don't want any leaven. Someone's going to come in and encrypt it, and they're going to hide it, and they're going to secretly place it in there so that it becomes something else, and it filters out through the whole lump. Don't let that happen. Purge the leaven from you. Remain pure before God. Is that what it is? It absolutely could be, because that is also consistently taught in Scripture. So I'm confident in my saying. I don't know. I'm confident in that. And I'm at peace with it. So what do you do when you come to a piece of Scripture and you're like, I don't know. There's like no other source content. And I'm not talking about your notes in your study Bible. That doesn't count, right? That's somebody. I mean, that's good stuff, but that doesn't count. But when you come to one and you're like, I just genuinely don't know what Jesus is saying. Guess what? You're in the exact ranks of the disciples for every one of these parables. And that's why Jesus would pull aside to some of the the more important ones and be like, let me explain this to you. And as we've already read a couple of times today, let me explain this to you again. You're in good company. I'm in good company. But regardless of which it is, there are some things we can pull away that would be consistent with both parables. Okay? With both, or at least not both parables, but both understandings of the parables. This is what I think we can take away, even if we're not exactly sure this is a warning or model of growth for the church. Number one, we can take away the easy, low-lying fruit. The kingdom is here now. We can take that away. The kingdom is here now. Whether you yourself are living in that kingdom, that is up for question. Whether the kingdom is here and alive, it is here and it is alive and it is not later. It is later, but it is also right now. The kingdom is alive right now. A second thing that we can take away is that there are influences in your life and in the church that you do not recognize. There are influences in your life and the church that you do not recognize. Some of those are good. Some of those are not so good. We are all influenced. We all accept what people that we consider an authority say. We look at others and we admire them. And if they say something, we say, okay. They influence us. If you have children, there is a time that you are the greatest influence in their lives. And then there is a time that you are not. Right? If you're like, Mark, I don't know about that. My kids, I really, I'm really speaking into my kids' lives. Then you have never consistently looked at your own life and asked yourself, were your parents really always the most important influence in your life? We have a time of influence. That influence begins to change. That influence passes to others when you're young. It passes to peers because peers then hold a very special place within your life because that is where your sense of peace and well-being lives. If I'm accepted, I'm at peace and I feel well. If I'm rejected, I'm not at peace, I do not feel well, which is the influence to be accepted. Which is a very hard thing to learn as a, a believer who is still in that world. As you get older, it does get better. 
Although the pressure is still there, isn't it? To fit in, to not be weird, to believe what everybody else believes. There's a pressure there, there's still. There are influences in your life and church you don't recognize. Now, we don't just look at that negatively. God is at work in your life. He has promised you, I have begun a a new work in you, and I will complete it till the end. God is at work. You don't always see God at work, but God is at work. But we also know that Satan is at work, looking to destroy all that God has built. We know he won't be successful. He's already defeated, yet he still has free reign for a time that God has given him. A third thing I think we can take away from this is that your smallest act of faithfulness has kingdom implications. See, we tend to think that the only thing that really matters are the big ones that everybody notices. You get a plaque for it. You think, oh, wow, they really made a difference. But that is not the way the gospel works. It can work that way, Large, well-known people do large, well-known things, and everyone notices. But the way the kingdom works is every small act of faithfulness has a kingdom impact. So if you think, I'm not big, I'm not, I'm not well-known, I don't have a big audience, I, I'm not just well-spoken, I, don't, I just can't, you know, I don't have a lot of people following me, that, that is not a requisite, to, a, a requirement in order for you to make an impact in the kingdom. Every small act of faithfulness is huge in the kingdom of God. That's why we should never look at someone who has made a step and say, you know what, but you should have made three. Talk about killing progress in somebody. Every step is in, has kingdom implications. The fourth thing is this. You have a supernatural empowerment, we, especially when the spiritual gifts and a calling to positively influence others for the kingdom. We cannot follow Jesus and ignore this. That's a part of sharing the gospel. While you may have grown up in a specific way of sharing the gospel, that doesn't mean that's the way God is moving you to share the gospel. That is sharing the gospel. That is caring for the broken, for those the oppressed, for those that need help. We are there for them. It means discipling the immature just as we have been discipled and continue to be discipled by others. Every follower of Jesus should have someone that is teaching them and someone that they are teaching. Every follower of Jesus. I will tell you, you will grow faster as you try to lead someone else than if you try to follow who you think is a spiritual giant. The greatest impact that the gospel will have is as you share it with others rather than you trying to get it all for yourself. And the fifth thing we can take away from this is you do have to be on guard against negative influences in your life. And this is what I worry about for us. We live in a culture that invites negative influences in and calls them positive. I mean, look at the books we read. Shows we watch, music we listen to. Look at the language we at times use, not in church, of course. And we let them in and they change us. And we think, but it's no big deal because this is the way the world works. And Jesus would say, well, that's not the way the kingdom works. The kingdom's different. We've got to be on guard against negative influences. We also have to be careful to start labeling people as negative influences, don't we? 
Because here's the thing, no one is 100% positive and no one is 100% negative, right? We can all get something positive from, you can get something positive from anybody, you can get something negative from anybody. I am not 100% positive influence, just ask my family. (laughs) Don't say anything in public, but, right? I'm also not 100% negative influence. I have some positive things to influence. When we look at somebody and say, oh, you're just bad. I just need to stay away from you. This is how the church operated and said, I will cut ties because you are not a good Christian. And we watched the power of the gospel wane in a culture that saw the church say, you're not good enough. We have to be careful about how we use this, but we've got to recognize negative influences in our life. Are the people that you let in unchallenged? Do you really want your life to look like theirs? So when we don't challenge the influence of others, we basically say, I want to look just like you. You've got to be on guard. You've got to be on guard about what comes in because the enemy wants to secretly insert something to corrupt and to change and to take away your freedom, take away your joy, take away your peace, take away your comfort. You've got to be on guard. But I don't think we should end with that. I think regardless, as we look at the parables as a whole, I think what we can take away is that if we follow the leading of Christ, we will grow into something beautiful as individuals, as families, as friends, as the church. I want to encourage you to continue moving forward. There's so many things you can take away from the parables. There are so many things that you can... Make your own and you can decide this is what God is saying to me through these things. I can't sum up the series in a nice quick little statement other than part of following Jesus is digging into this stuff and finding the treasure that God has for us at that moment. I want to encourage you to continue digging for this treasure. Continue looking for what he's wanting to say. Continue looking for the kingdom, living within the kingdom, recognizing that you are citizens of the kingdom. You may be citizens of a country, but yet our true identity is in a kingdom that is not of this world. God is doing something in you. He's going to complete it until it's perfected. All right? All right, pray with me. Father, God, I thank you for your work, your teachings, your warnings, your promises. So many times it is just easier to just turn around and close our eyes and live in this world and whatever it takes for people not to reject us. It's sometimes just easier to do that. But God, I pray that you would allow us to see your kingdom and to live with your, your kingdom. I, I pray that whenever you speak to us, we would not only hear you, but we would be motivated to do what you have said. I, I pray that we wouldn't just be focused on action also. I, I pray that we as a people would experience you and that would enrich our lives and the outpouring of your spirit through us would enrich the lives of others. And I'm not real sure which meaning you had in mind here, but I know both are true. I thank you for your work subversively letting the gospel grow within this world until eventually you're returning. And I pray that you would protect us from all of the work of the evil one who seeks to, con- to corrupt and contaminate 
that which you've given us. Let us be on guard. Let us be prepared. And let us stay focused on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.